Well, good morning to everyone here with us in person. It is a joy to be together. To everyone that is joining us online, we are glad that you are with us today. We're going to do something real quick, and I need you to be loud and boisterous about it. Just remaining where you are, look around and say hello to the people that are in, in voice shot from you. Some of you can get to the other room. That's, that would be great. Okay, that was more awkward than I thought, but great. I'm glad we did it. We did it. We sure did. If you have a Bible, please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 25. We are moving right along in our series in Exodus, Delivered to Dwell, and now we're getting into some designs for what that dwelling might be like. This week and the next two weeks, we're going to be considering God's design to dwell. And today we're going to be considering the the tabernacle, this portable sort of church, mobile church if you will. Uh, that God is setting up for his people. We're going to be looking through three chapters today. So I've said this multiple times through our Exodus series. There are certain parts where we just slow down. We spent three weeks on the Ten Commandments, and then there are going to be chunks that we just have to consider as a whole. And so we're going to consider three chapters, but we're going to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 25, it gives us a sense, a picture, a, an idea of what we are going to be considering together today. So let's hear God's word, Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twinned linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance, fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the opportunity to get to your word together, and we would pray that you would be with us this hour, this time. God, would you help us to rest and trust in you, and would you do a good work in our hearts? And so we pray, be with the preaching, and the hearing, and the receiving, and the believing, and the trusting, and the clinging to this, your word, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. When I was in the sixth grade, I had to ride the bus to school, which was just the worst. I was the second to last stop uh, before school, and there was always nowhere to sit. It was certainly an anxiety pressure cooker for a 12-year-old. One time I got on the bus, and there was a whole bench wide open. Couldn't believe it. Normally it doesn't ever happen that way as well as the spot next to that wide open bench. 
And the kid sitting in that spot put his bag in the way, signaling, even if I wanted to sit there, I couldn't. And so I quietly sat and happily sat in the open bench, slid to the window as typical fashion. Now, the one redeeming thing about the bus ride in sixth grade was the last stop of the bus ride to school was Jennifer's stop. And Jennifer was in eighth grade, and she was considered probably the best-looking girl in all of middle school. So that was a highlight on the way to school. This particular day, Jennifer was faced with an option. Sit with me, or sit with this other kid who somehow magically found room for his bag at his feet. When she sat down with me, I was floored. When she talked to me the entire way to school, I was deer in the headlight speechless. Those were by far the best 12 minutes of a school bus ride I had ever had. We get delighted when someone significant spends time with us. Whatever that significance might be, we get delighted when we get to spend time with someone significant. It impacts how we feel about ourselves. It gives us a joy that we can't wait to share with others. How much more amazing is it that God wants to not just sit with you on a school bus, but to take up residence in your life? That God delivers you from the oppression of your sin. He delivers you from the thing that separates you from Him so that He could dwell with you. He removes the obstacle so that He can take residence in your life. And this is amazing. God delivering sinners so as to dwell with sinners. This is amazing. And this amazing story has been the story the whole time in Scripture. As I said already, we are entering a spot now where God's giving instructions on what it looks like to dwell with Him. How this is His design to dwell And here we're getting a a focus on the tabernacle, the meeting place between God and His people. And so we need to take into stock what it is that God is conveying to His people. We need to then understand that in light of the whole of Scripture. And then we need to take that which seems ancient and far, tabernacle and acacia wood and, and gold and silver and all sorts of like like very detailed descriptions, and it it seems foreign to us and far from us. So how then does it relate to us in the here and the now? We need to do all of that because really at the heart of it is this gracious God who brings about the rescue of His people so as to dwell with them. And why that should have a profound impact on how you feel about yourself and the amount of joy that you have and that you can't wait to share it. Now that's what we're going to consider today. We're going to look at the tabernacle, and in that tabernacle, it's going to display to us two things that we really need to to take into account. Not just our heads, not just our imaginations as you're thinking about, what would that even look like? But also into our hearts and how it informs our lives. And first is this, the tabernacle displays to us God's 
plans to dwell. It's a lot of details and a lot of interesting things that God instructs the people to build, and they all convey some important spiritual realities that we need to take into account. It's God's plans to dwell. And those plans are because there's a pattern. And that's the second thing that we're going to see, that there is a pattern that unfolds in the pages of Scripture and history and is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ and is applied to our lives and what we're doing in this very moment right now. And we're a part of that pattern. And so we're going to see God's pattern to dwell. God is in the business of rescuing sinners so as to dwell with them. This is remarkably good news for you and for me. It's good news. So let's, ta- let's tackle this good news together. The first is this, God's plans to dwell. What we find here in these three chapters, chapters 25, 26, and 27, is the unfolding of God's plans for this thing called the tabernacle. And, and it's a place where God and his people would meet and, and dwell together. His presence would be manifest or on display, and his people would be able to gather and worship him. It's a three-part structure. So for those of you, think of, uh, think of this in light of, of concentric circles. That is like a small, intense circle, then, a, then a, a bigger circle, and then an outer circle. There's a three-part structure uh, in mind here in play as we move through this. I'm going to walk through those three parts so that we can see God's plans to dwell and then set that in the context of his pattern that's unfolding through the pages of Scripture. So first, let's get to work. First part. It's called the Holy of Holies. It's found in uh, chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. It's that innermost part of the concentric circles. It's that most holy place where God's particular presence is, is known through His Word. The Holy of Holies symbolizing God's presence through His Word. And at the heart of this part of the tabernacle, we find two very important things. The Ark of the Covenant... And the mercy seat. Both of these things, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, this location, this holy of holies, if you will, it represents a heavenly reality on earth. And that's a lot of what's going on in in the rest of this, this part of Exodus. There are earthly dynamics, earthly physical dynamics that are based on and pointing forward to heavenly spiritual realities. That's important. Keep that in mind. Write that down in your head, in your heart, or on a paper, on your tablet, or whatever it is. That these earthly, physical dynamics are based off of and pointing forward to heavenly spiritual realities. And so, what do we find here? Well, as you look through this, and I'm going to encourage you at some point to read the whole of these three chapters, you'll find uh, an interesting and fascinating descriptions, and keep that dynamic in mind. Earthly, physical dynamics point to heavenly spiritual realities. What we find here is both the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat are sort of surrounded, if you will, covered with, you will, these things called cherubim, expertly you know, crafted in uh, with great art and skill. These cherubim represent a heavenly reality. 
Cherubim are heavenly beings. They're woven into the curtains that separate this space from the rest of the tabernacle. And they're statues that are on the ark itself. They're pointing to these realities that, that even in the heavenly throne room, there these cherubim are doing very similar things. You can find that in Revelation chapter 4. And at the middle in all of this, in the Ark of the Covenant, and, and right over it, the mercy seat, is this very key, important, crucial aspect of this holy of holy places. And that's the presence of the Word of God. Center in this dynamic is God's Word. The words God gave the people are kept in the ark, and the mercy seat is the place from which God will speak. Uh, Looking down at Exodus 25, verse 22, God speaking, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. At the heart of all of this is God's word. So that means that for the heart of the people of God is to trust that word, to submit to that word, to hold on to that word. That's God revealing himself specially to his people so that they would know him, know what he's like. Yes, you can look at creation and say there's a glorious God, but what is he like? Well, God gives us his word. And it's not about submitting to magical artifacts, but rather receiving and believing and trusting and clinging to and loving and following God's word because that's what he's given us to know him by. His word. And God's presence is known through the centrality of God's word among his people. He said to us so much. Now, at the heart of that tabernacle is the heart of, of God's word, representing his presence among the people. And that leads us then to the second place. So, thinking again of those concentric circles, the most uh, impact in, in central one being the Holy of Holies. The next one is called the Holy Place. You'll find that in um, Exodus 25, verses 23 through 40. And this place represents or symbolizes God's presence with His people. So the Holy of Holies is like just God's like blazing bright presence. And then the next tier or the next circle is God's presence with His people. In this section, you'll find three important things described in detail in terms of how they are to be made. The table of bread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand. And I know some of for our ears right now in the 21st century, we have instant streaming on-demand movies. We have little like high-powered computers that we carry around in our phone or in our pockets. I mean, we we have this sort of like technologically advanced culture and and the pace of it. And this all seems especially foreign to us. Just stay with me through this. But these things, the table of bread, the altar of incense, and the lampstand, they all are conveying significant aspects of God dwelling with His people and what that would mean for His people. For example, the table of bread, it represents communion 
our fellowship with God. That God has provided a way for His people to have fellowship with Him. To feast with Him. And not only fellowship with God, but with each other with God. The corporate dynamic, not the individualistic mindset, but a people. Not a bunch of individual persons, but a people. A redeemed people gathering together to fellowship with God and each other. Then we see the altar of incense. That altar of incense is representing Godward affections and thoughts and worship and prayer life of His gathered people. It's the gathering together and going Godward with all of our thoughts and adoration and hopes and supplications and, and prayers and pleadings together. God has provided a way for us to approach Him and dwell with Him and share our hearts together with Him. And then lampstand. Lampstand one first reflects God's presence, but then two, its impact on God's people is that it represents the witness of God's worshiping people. That our worship is to be a reflection of His glory and grace to the world. Our gathering together for worship is to inform and and shape the character of our witness in this world. We're not to build a little cul-de-sac that we hide in. But rather we are to worship God, have our, our lives situated Godward, and, and the overflow of that joy and that hope and that conviction is that it would then form our witness in this world. The nature of our worship forms the character of our witness. To be a lamp is to reflect light that you've received. And so if we want to have the nature of our worship be fixated on something other than God, then that's going to then form a particular kind of witness that will be no good to the gospel that God has called us to make much of. However, if we want to see our heads, our hearts, our very lives situated on who God is and how amazing His grace is and how full and vast and and new and fresh every morning His mercy is, then what do you think that would do to then our witness in this world? So, we are facing here in this holy place the character of God and the care for His people, that they would fellowship with Him, bring their hearts before Him in worship, and then reflect His glory and grace in this world. That's awesome. God's designed it this way. That's His design. This is the unpacking of His design. He, he wants this for you. There was a a particularly impacting book for me. Well, really, even one of the authors is a scholar um, named Greg Beal, and he's really he's done scholarly work on this, and then he's made other books accessible, more accessible. Um, but it's a book called "God Dwells Among Us," and Beal and his co-author Mitchell Kim uh, say these words about his presence impact on us. 
from God's presence, the fire of our witness burns bright as we are lampstands and reflect the glory of God to the world. In God's presence, the intimacy of community is found as we feast together before Him. Because of God's presence, our prayers ascend before His throne. The power of God's presence fuels our witness in this world. When I think of this, and I see this picture and this design played out, the earthly physical dynamics pointing to a heavenly spiritual reality that's good for, his, for God's people. When I think of this, what a profound privilege and joy this is. And also, like, how not religious checklist is God about any of this? <laughs> he cares deeply about you. And your greatest good is to find joy in Him. And knowing His joy in being with you. Not only that, but when you read through this and you, you read the descriptions of how these things were to be made and with what materials that I listed off in, in the reading of Exodus 25, 1 through 9, God's not making something haphazard. He's not making something dull and boring. He's making something incredibly beautiful. The God who created all of the cosmos He's given specific designs for what it would be like for his people to dwell with him. And it is beautiful. And it is amazing. It is full of grace and wonder that we would be able to be with God. And so that stuff that our heads and our hearts do, when we make that sort of religious checklist thing, we check it off and we feel good about ourselves and we pat ourselves on the back and we go about our day as if we appeased God in some fashion with our religious performance or attendance. That totally misses God's heart for what he wants with his people. He wants your heart. He wants your joy. He wants your fellowship. And he's worth all your adoration and worship. And that experience and understanding and grasp of what God is unfolding here in these pages is not only going to to form and fuel the worship, but it will form and fuel our witness in this world that God really is awesome. He makes all the best things. Now, when you read through this and you feel like it's also a little bit of a dynamic, like you just bought furniture from Ikea and you're staring at it like, what? <laughs> God transcends and he's amazing and he's overwhelming and then he he stoops down into our lives and takes up residence what a privilege and joy what a, this is this, this god is amazing and he calls you into this amazing joy well that leads us to the third court the third outer rim of the concentric circles and it kind of leads us right into the predicament and problem that we all face. The outer court symbolizes God's provision for his people. You can read about this in, in Exodus 26 and 27. It's describing the physical layout of the tabernacle and then how the outer court was to be set up. And, and really the outer court consists of the court, the altar, and the wash basin. 
And, and all of this is re- representing how God provides for our greatest predicament, our sin. A holy God wants to dwell with sinful people. Sinful people can't just roll up into God's place, throw on their feet up onto the ottoman and say, yo, I'm here. God provides a way for us then to dwell with him. And the outer court is this earthly, physical dynamic speaking to, pointing forward to a heavenly spiritual reality that will have then an even greater earthly physical dynamic fulfilling it. And that is this. The court represents where the people dwell. It it represents fallen humanity, sinful people, the very people that God wants to dwell with, but they have sin. So what can take away this sin so that they can dwell with this holy God? Well, that's where we find the altar and the wash basin. Both represent God's provisional means to atone and clean his people so that they may dwell with him. And so we see here in instructions that priests representing the people would wash with the basin, they would sacrifice at the altar, and then they would enter the holy place. And by, and by doing so, they are representing the people before God. And so as God welcomes them in, so He welcomes His atoned for washed people. Now there was a whole process they had to do all the time. All the time. And then when that priest died, he had to be replaced because it had to be doing, done all the time. It was an all-the-time situation because sin is an all-the-time problem. I hope you anticipate where we'll go with that. But all of this, these plans that are unfolding in these three chapters are because God wants to dwell with rescued people. And this is their means of rescue and dwelling. And this plan is set within the context of a pattern that unfolds through the pages of Scripture. A pattern that unfolds. Not only are God's plans a plan to dwell, but it is also a pattern to dwell. And that pattern we see by looking back and looking forward. When we look backward, we can see that pattern. We don't have to look back very far. That sort of three-part pattern we see at Mount Sinai itself over the last few weeks as we've been sort of hovering around Mount Sinai where the people of God and Moses and God are all meeting together, we see a very similar setup. You have the top of the mountain where God's glory and presence is, and he calls Moses up into that part of the mountain. Then you have the midway up part of the mountain where the priests and all those representatives gathered gathered and in God's presence got to eat and drink with him. You consider that last week? They got to go kind of halfway up. And then at the base of the mountain, we have the rest of God's people all waiting and terrified and wondering what in the world is going on and given instructions to not even touch the mountain. So obviously representing the outer court. So you can see the top of the mountain is in line with the Holy of Holies. The midway up the mountain is in line with the holy place. And the base of the mountain is in line with the outer court of the tabernacle. We don't have to look back too far to see God's already at work in this pattern. But we can go all the way back to the very beginning and see it there. We can go all the way back to Eden and find the same structure, dynamic, 
in place. In, if, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, I'm going to read these words. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of, the, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. I may not see it at first glance, but it's there. You have Eden, this special place where God would, His presence would be known and dwelt among His creation. And, in, and so it's the Holy of Holies line up. And then, and then from there we see a garden, a special place that God made for dwelling with mankind. It's lush, it's fruitful, it's full, it's amazing. It's, it's a place where, where life can live. And then out from Eden and through the garden and then into these four rivers that go to the, to the earth, we see God's presence flowing outward to the ends of the earth. That this good news would go forth that God is the giver of life. This pattern and this picture in Eden and at Sinai and in the tabernacle and then later in the temple and then later in the person and work of Jesus Christ and then in later in glory are all reflecting this heavenly reality that God desires to be with people who will rest in and rejoice over and reflect His glory and all of it is of His grace. Scripture unfolds this story. It's amazing. It's amazing. Also tells me like God's not working on plan B right now. <laughs> this is all plan A. He hasn't been undercut. He hasn't been frustrated. He's accomplishing His good purposes to dwell with people. To bring them into the joy of his glory by means of his grace. So that's what we do when we look back. We can see that pattern. We can look forward. And you see the tabernacle, which is like church mobile, later on gets into church like established, if you will. And, and when the people of God become a nation of their own land, and it, that tabernacle then turns into a temple, you'll find very similar dynamics and structure set up in place for that. And then we see that also in Jesus' day. But more importantly, this is pointing us forward to Jesus himself. That's right. This structure is pointing forward to Jesus. To Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is what? God in the flesh. And what did he want to do in the flesh? Well, we know John 1.14, don't we? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was at the center of the Holy of Holies? The Word of God. What is at the center of the incarnation? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No longer a physical structure, but a person. The God-man, Jesus, God in the flesh, to do 
all of what the tabernacle and the temple were all pointing forward to, what the pattern was pointing forward to. This incredible good news that would go out to the ends of the earth that God has supplied for us an everlasting means in which we can dwell with him because he came and took up residence with us. The incarnation is God dwelt among us. And then we see the incarnation leads to then the crucifixion. That is, God's means of atonement for our sin so that a sinful people can dwell with God. How does God deal with the problem of our sin once for all, finally, fully, and forever, so that we can rest and rejoice and, and, and make much of Him for all eternity? Well, He does that through Jesus. He does that for you through Jesus. Just think of the weariness, the, the, the ongoing day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year, decade-to-decade aspect of the tabernacle and the temple. Always bloody. Always dealing with sin. Always, 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 always. Now think of Christ once for all. Once. One time. So amazingly sufficient for all of our sin for all time that he only had to do it once. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews is a great place to see how the New Testament understands this aspect of the Old Testament. How it's fulfilled in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, Jesus, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That altar, that wash basin, that very priest doing that work, all of it, that tabernacle, that tent, that that, those poles, that altar, that mercy seat, that curtain, all of it, all of it, every ounce of it, is fulfilled in Jesus. All of it. He has taken away all the obstacles of your sin. Why? Because the plan and that pattern, it all says God wants to dwell with you. He delights to sit down with you. To enter into your life. To take up residence with you. To bring you into a people that you belong to and with. Into the joy of knowing him together. You. Yeah, you. Not you, amorphous. Ah, personal, 
nameless, faceless. No, you. Your name, your face, your life. It's easy for us to feel isolated and alone, especially now for many of us. To feel distant and far. I find this portion wonderfully comforting. The artistry and the beauty and the passion, if you will, of God to build something incredible so that he could dwell with his people. And then to see how that is fulfilled in Jesus. How Jesus does it all so that you, once for all, could be with God. Incredibly good news. Sobering, but yet inspiring and awesome. And that's not it. That's not all. That incarnation leads to crucifixion, and that crucifixion leads to resurrection, into newness of life, into a new life that gets to reflect the grace and glory of God, that all those who put their faith and their trust and their hope and they attach it all to Jesus and say, it's Jesus or it's nothing for me. All of those who are in Christ now have new life. And that new life is to walk out bright, shining, reflecting the grace and glory of God. We don't reflect, I got my life together, I got cleaned up, and then God gave me the validated like ticket and I can enter in now. No, it is, I'm an absolute mess, but God's grace cleans me up and brings me into His presence. And this is good news for you too if you're a mess. So anyone who else is a mess in here, I got good news for you. God cleans you up in Christ and welcomes you into his home. And he says, take up and eat and drink with me. And in that resurrection, you and I get to be little lamps in a dark world, shining bright, the grace and glory of God. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. He says these words, you, his people, his redeemed people, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What a profound and wonderful, meaningful life that you and I get to live in this ordinary, broken, fallen world. God's desire to dwell with sinners such as us and to make the way for that to happen fully, finally, and forever in Christ is a staggering joy. A staggering joy to melt hard hearts. A staggering joy to fuel our worship and our witness. A staggering joy This is not drudgery. This is joy that we get to share in when we gather together. Our dwelling with God through Christ forms our worship. Forms it. Our dwelling with God through Christ fosters our community, our fellowship together. 
unites us. Our, fellow, our dwelling with God through Christ then also fuels our mission to make much of the grace and glory of God in this world. And if we want to understand God's design to dwell, then we need to understand it together as the church in Christ and with this gospel. This incredible structure God gave is nothing compared to the incredible life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in whom this structure points us to. And may that fuel our hearts with worship in our lives, witnessing to his glory and grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in it we find such incredible truths about your character, your works, your heart for sinners such as us. We can be weary and worn down. We can feel alone and lonely. We can feel far. We can feel overmatched and overwhelmed by sin. We can feel all these things in anxious and depressive ways. And yet at the same time, God, you have provided for us richly, abundantly, fully in Jesus. Your heart for us through Christ is overwhelmingly huge and clear. And I pray that we would take that in and rest in that and take great comfort in that and find great courage in that and great strength in that and great joy in it. Even in the midst of our struggles and our circumstances, may the truth that you rescue a people to dwell with them, may that be comfort to us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would, please stand for our benediction this morning. Our benediction comes from 2 Corinthians at the very end of this letter. Familiar words, good words, relevant words. May you go with these words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen.